Welcome to the Wayward Muse podcast, where we travel through drinks. This podcast is made possible because of our listeners. If you enjoy our podcast, let us know by liking, subscribing, and commenting. This helps our page reach more people and keep creating content for you. As a thank you for tuning in, we're offering you 10% off our entire Wayward Muse store. Just use code Listen to Your Muse to get discounts on exclusive merch and industry standard barware. And soon, custom glassware. 20% of all profits go to charities that support the restaurant industry so you can shop with confidence. Our guest this week is a Wayward Muse alum. He has overseen programs all over Chicago and is a dear friend of the Wayward Muse crew, Roger Landis. While you may have seen him slinging drinks in such places as The Loyalist, MFK, and Bar Sotono, Roger is beginning the steps to open his new concept. For insights into the process of opening a bar during a pandemic, let's welcome Roger Landis. Caledonia. Could you talk us about what that word means to you and how this concept came to light? So Caledonia is what the Romans referred to uh, as the area north of their domain. That's uh, area geographically uh, we call uh, Scotland now. Um, but at the time um, they called it Caledonia. And it, it really was like this, this like kind of mystical place um, because no one knew what was there. You know, it was it was outside of the realm of understanding and it was kind of dangerous and it was uh, for sure uh, kind of fantastic. For me, when I was thinking of what I wanted the bar to be like, that idea of being kind of outside the realm of the normal uh, was the most important thing to me. And then seeing how that could manifest itself. When you described Caledonia to me right now, I just kind of my mind immediately jumped to Macbeth and the fact that even seven, eight hundred years after the Romans were there, people still had that same feeling about that area, that of that mysticism, of that that sense of magic that that is in Scotland. And I think that a lot of people will kind of feel that when they walk into the space once you create it. Yeah, and that's the kind of the goal, you know, is like, um, you know, how can we make this thing that Instead of just being, you know, your corner tavern or, uh, you know, uh, something a little like uh, moody or dark or loud and aggressive, like, how can we live in this realm of like uh, um, kind of comfort mysticism, um, you know, without being, uh, you know, corny as all hell? Yeah, it's going to be a, a fun line to walk. Can you walk us through some of the hurdles that you've had to deal with trying to? open up or think through a concept during a pandemic? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, I, you know, my partner and I started looking in uh, for real estate in 2019. Um, and we had hammered out, you know, a different concept um, and started looking for real estate and uh, was feeling pretty good about our chances. Um, and that was late 2019. Um, you know, I was kind of, planning on leaving my job at the time and was really dedicated towards opening something in 2020, um, you know, end of 2020. Uh, and that was the goal. We had that set. Uh, and then the plague happened. So, you know, hurdles are going to happen in this process, no matter what, but to find out that 
if we open, we cannot use our full capacity, uh, essentially halted our, our project completely. Um, I think so. You know, because, you know, you make, um, you know, and we'll go into this more later, but you make a lot of projections on, you know, based off of how many people you can fit, how many you expect to show up, what your price point's going to be, you know, all this stuff, it all comes together into, okay, this is how much money I expect to make in the first year. And it's, it's tiny, you know, it's this number and you look at it and you're just like, that's it. Like, hold on mm -hmm. a second. Do we, can we, can we shove in an extra 15 people a night? Like, you know, what do we need to do here? And, yeah, seriously. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're literally like, okay, well, I guess we got to find a patio and, you know, that kind of thing. So um, it, it becomes really difficult. Um, so to hear, you know, right off the bat, uh, you know, indoor, indoor dining will not get to 50% for another six months. You know, it was like, well, what do you mean? Like, we couldn't possibly. Uh, so everything kind of got put on hold. About halfway through 2020, I split with my partner. He bought at a restaurant. He's doing great. I wish him all the best. But for me, it was like, you know, I still really want to do this tavern. So immediately, like when I continued looking for investors, the first thing they, they said was like, you can't open without food right now due yeah. to all of the regulations. So, you know, that was a huge kind of like uh, call that I had to make, which was like, do I have to completely rebrand and reconcept to include food or do I stick to my guns and say, I'm not going to open for another six months. So that I mean, was really difficult. Cause if you think about it, I, I don't think that Roger Landis really wants to, I feel like if you're at Caledonia, you just have to have haggis. Right. And I don't think you really want to make <laughs> yes. that reality for yourself. Have you ever had haggis? I have not had the good fortune to enjoy that style of uh, culinary cuisine. No, I actually like tend to kind of like awful, but like it, that's the worst thing I've ever eaten in my life. Do we it's know really that? bad. I it's might really try bad. and avoid it. But uh, so I decided no food, and and you know, talking to investors, it was you know it was a lot of crunching numbers, but I could essentially prove that it was worth it to hold off on opening then have food and you know raise the the build out and the salary for hiring a chef and the hourly that you have to have for having cooks and a dishwasher now you and have to have a station and, yeah. and prep and yeah all this stuff so for me like i appreciate uh you know how many amazing food options are in Chicago. You know, it's an embarrassment of riches, but, and good on everybody that has a cocktail bar that has food. But for the most part, in my experience, it's usually half-assed and it's just not worth it. You know, I'm not going to put something out that I don't think is of the highest quality. So it just wasn't even, you know, a consideration for me. You know, I found a chef that I knew could do a good job and you know, he was willing to to jump on the project with me. And quite frankly, I just didn't want to do it. I mean, it's a whole other hurdle and it, it's an area that you'd have to explore. And your highest profit margin is traditionally through your alcohol. So if you can optimize that with a tavern, which is a very specific license in Chicago as being a place that doesn't serve food, 
And you can stand to make more money that way if you can get people inside of said tavern. Right. And it also slows down the approval process with the city. Chicago is very special in many ways, but you have to pass all of your inspections before uh, you can get signed off on your liquor license. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is vastly different from New York and Los Angeles. and, And as far as I know, most other places in the country. So you're taking a real gamble just trying to get open to be, to be able to pass all your inspections on time. I've done so many openings and it always, always, always comes down to a health inspector that decides you need a sneeze guard. And now you got to go find a sneeze guard and then install it and then have, you know, then you got to schedule them to come back and then they come back and it's not high enough. So, you know, it, it, it's just something that like I wasn't really interested in doing, um, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to make sure that the mop sink was there. I had a free sink behind the bar, you know, enough bathroom space for everybody who came in and make sure that it was accessible for everybody. That's what a tavern needs to do to get open. I've never seen a health inspector come to a tavern more than once because there's no food. Yeah. So it's to me, it was like, you know, I'm not risking opening, you know, two months later due to this, like I'm not risking uh, losing money on product and, salaries and hourly and all this stuff. Um, so I said no to food and that was devastating to my potential investors. Part of the issue that I had not foreseen was I had a lot of people that were willing to invest in me that were not restaurant people. And I felt good about being able to raise money because of them. And then when it came time for me to actually show up, Um, The remark was, uh, well, we'd like to see someone invest from the restaurant world so we know that we're making a wise decision. And that's what I've read is that most of the hurdles with finding investors is finding your first investor. Right. Because everyone will kind of wait in the wings to see who bites first. And then after that, you go back to everyone else. You say, look at this person. They said yes. So obviously, if they say yes, then you should say yes. And then. Right. Um, and that goes to the banks. You know, the banks want to see someone with experience investing in you before they'll take a look at you. So that could be super difficult. There's a lot of people that can help, you know, for a fee. And if that's what it takes to get done, that's what it takes to get done. Um, but it is not easy. And yeah, that was that's probably been one of my bigger hurdles to date. The other issue and the, the bigger issue with, uh, you know, finding restaurant people was not the fact that, you know, hey, I don't want to do food. Um, you know, for the most part, everybody understood that, but they were like, you know, talk to me in six months. The biggest issue was it's the middle of a pandemic. And these, these, you know, men and women that have five, six, 12 restaurants are all doing the worst year they've ever done. Mm-hmm. And they just don't have the capital to invest in anything else, which makes it super difficult. So were you going to other restaurant groups or people that you knew had a disposable income and were successful in the industry to uh, pitch your concept? Yeah, I was. You know, it was um, it was a lot of people that I had worked with in the past. Um, and then, you know, just uh, people that I had a lot of respect for in the industry that we had met over the years and had a good rapport and that kind of thing. 
but you know, it, it was just tough. You know, it, it's hard to find somebody who's doing really well right now uh, in this industry. Um, the other difficult part when you're finding an investor um, is the concept itself. And it was something that like I recognized early on is like, you know, Caledonia is a really romantic idea, but it's not the kind of thing that's like, hey, this is your next multi-million dollar, uh, you know, bar idea that you're going to have, you know, 30 of across the states. It's not Chipotle, right? Where it's like, oh my God, this is so crazy. I can't believe no one's thought of this. You know, yeah. it is a unique idea, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that uniqueness is going to lead to capital. So it's really hard to pitch, you know, like it's really, it's really easy for me to talk to you about mm -hmm. Caledonia, but when you're asking somebody for money, they tend to not care about the romanticism stuff, which I understand, you know, it's their money, it's their capital. They want to know that they're going to get a return on their investment. Uh, as quickly as humanly possible. So what I made was this thing called the deck, uh, the investor deck. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it included a logo, it included, um, you know, key assumptions about our demographic, uh, my demographic. Uh, it included the opening cocktail menu, which I'm sure a lot of people would be really excited to look at. Every investor, and I mean that in when I say 100%, 100% of, of my investors skipped immediately to the part that said projected profit and loss. It is really difficult to be like, you know, hey, no, but really it's cool. <laughs> and, and for anybody to give a shit about it. So, you know, if you're going, you know, into this, you know, thinking, you know, uh, this is going to be the coolest thing, you know, it's going to be really difficult to hook somebody. So I kind of, after the first couple, I just completely redid my pitch, uh, uh, you know, platform. Mm -hmm. um, into kind of starting with, listen, this is why this is going to make money and then getting into like, also, isn't this a cool idea, you know, and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. but it's a, it's a huge problem. So what sort of adjust, like, could you name maybe a, an adjustment you made in your pitch that you thought really helped you kind of secure investors? Well, I think, um, you know, what I did is I kind of like, I had the pitch, um, or I had the, like the deck, you know, physical material, you know, digital material uh, for them to look at. Um, and then it was like, okay, you know, once I actually get into, you know, a conversation aspect uh, with this person, you know, I need to immediately, you know, get away from th the romantic nature of it and bring it into, okay, what's the selling point? And I started with, you know, right off the bat, you know, if I didn't know the person, I gave them a quick introduction. Um, you know, I did all this over Zoom, um, quick introduction, and then immediately said, like, look, the location is great for these reasons. The real estate is great for these reasons. Construction costs are going to be this. From the lease, we got this, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. it was immediately getting into the kind of bullet points of, why is this a good idea? And then when that was kind of accepted and, you know, I could get like physical tells that this was kind of clicking, then I kind of backed up and I was like, you know, by the way, Caledonia means this. And this is why I think this is going to work uh, to bring in people and why it's going to be popular. And, you know, on this page, 
these are the people I think are going to come and, you know, things like that. Um, so I completely changed the flow up uh, like 180 degrees um, from like, I'm going to make them fall in love with this to like, I'm just going to kind of show them what they want to see, show them that it's the numbers they want, tell them how long it's going to take for me to pay them back uh, and then get to the stuff that's kind of the cherry on top. Yeah, it seems that your pivot, which is a word that keeps coming up, was very similar to what you do in a bar or restaurant, which is just knowing your guest. These investors almost seem like your guest and you were able to use an adjustment you've been you know, using for over a decade to be able to key into what they were really interested in. Yeah. I mean, I think it's knowing your audience, right? Like, yeah. um, and that I think was important going from talking to the, you know, people that are in Chicago, you can kind of like discuss the neighborhood, uh, you know, people from outside of Chicago don't know anything about the neighborhood and don't care. Right. So I think that, um, knowing your audience is such a bartender thing. Right. Yeah. Like, and, you know, I, I got my start in the industry working in dive bars, you know, in punk clubs. Mm-hmm. So you could tell by somebody walking in you know, how they were dressed, you know, how, you know, fucked up they looked, you know, how you were going to handle this particular situation. And the exciting part of the job is like how many different situations there are, you know, every cocktail bartender should start working at a punk club. I feel like that's a, that should be a requirement. Definitely missed that in my whole uh, upbringing through the industry. I mean, the my first bar, like real bar manager, was a, a punk fanatic. He called himself a uh, punk rock Rob. That's how he was known across all of Tucson. Of course. So shout out to punk rock Rob. It was always fun because it totally. I was the morning bartender. Like I tried to sneak in and say, "Oh yeah, I bartended this bistro," but he knew the place, and he was like, "You don't bartend. You pour wine." And so <laughs> he uh, stuck me on mornings, and I'd walk in at like nine in the morning after going to bed at five, and he would just be blasting his music, and he's like, "Are you ready to go?" And he'd just be like, you know, jazzed up, counting bottles, and I was just barely existing as a person. So that was my introduction. Yeah. To that style. It. it was pretty great. <laughs> I thought of a, another interesting hurdle that we might have is uh, given the pandemic and everything, you searching for a spot. Is there uh, some issues that you might feel? Because, I mean, there are so many bars that have closed, right, that you might have like a personal connection to. Like a lot for me, like I think about Crown Liquors and I don't even want to like think about someone touching that spot simply because it's just so iconic in my brain about the presence that it has. Yeah. So man, how much time we got the like ethics of this, this issue uh, has like kept me up at night. Right. Where, where you're like, uh, and you know, that a lot of people have, when they find out you know, that I, I'm trying to do this, um, you know, will say like, you know, Oh, well, you know, you're, you're not going to have any competition. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, that sucks. <laughs> Yeah. Like that's a terrible thing to think about. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, do you, do I really want, you know, to take over, you know, these spaces that, that my friends run. I had a buddy who called me and he was like, uh, you know, let me know if you know anybody uh, who needs help. And I was like, help for what? He's like, well, you know, I just got fired. And I was like, it was, it was incredulous. The guy was like one of the best bar managers in the city. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't understand. And he was like, yeah, they're, they're closing. They're, they, they can't stay open. They can't make rent. You know, we can't sell anything. We can't have any sales. Like there's no way we're going to be able to stay open. So they're just going to close now. 
And, you know, I was heartbroken to hear it. It's a great bar, you know, a place that I had gone to so often. And within maybe an hour, my real estate agent called me and asked me if I wanted to, to tour it. Wow. Um, and a, I mean, that's a good real estate agent, kind of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not mad at him. I wasn't angry. I, I just found the situation to be so sad. And like, you know, would I really do that? Like, would I change anything about like what, what they had accomplished? Like, I thought what they had accomplished was beautiful, but mm -hmm. it's not what I want to do. So, you know, the answer was no, you know, I can't do it. There's also the factor of like, a lot of these places are closing because the landlords are refusing to do anything about their rent. You know, a lot of the process that I've learned looking at real estate is like, you need to ask a, a, a lot of questions to the real estate agent about the landlord. You know, you know what are they willing to do? What are they willing to, to try and get accomplished, right? And, the, you know, there's these like landlords that want to get the highest investment off of their buck. And there's landlords that just want to see a rent check every month, but not necessarily fix the things when they go wrong. There's a lot of like in between and like finding the landlord that works for you is just as important as square footage and rent and walkability and, and you know, all of those things. So for me, a lot of these places that are closing are closing because you've got landlords refusing to help out on the rent. And do you really want to take over that space? And do you want to, you know, uh, give a, a rent check to that landlord? You know, if, if the shit hits the fan, you know, are they going to be there to help? Or are they just going to say, where's my money? And, you know, for me, like, I, I don't want that, you know? Yeah. And I mean, there are so many horror stories that we've heard over the past year I mean, and a lot of them, just because there wasn't a lot of like material about restaurants, a lot of our publication magazines on our industry were just went to town on digging up the details on a terrible, terrible landlord experience. Like I'm thinking of a, a few places that are, you know, near you, near Logan Square and Humboldt Park that are just, it was just crazy to see how like cutthroat it immediately became of both sides just saying, well, none of these rules apply to me because I have this or you didn't do that. And it just was. Yeah. And I mean, it, it was like, um, it, it wasn't like um, landlords that really needed the money that were coming after people for rent. It wasn't your mom and pop landlord who literally pays, you know, the mortgage on their house based off of rent checks. You know, mm -hmm. it, that was not the case. And then on the flip side, like you had major restaurant groups that were vacating buildings and breaking their lease for seemingly no reason at all besides inconvenience. And that stinks for everybody. That makes everybody look bad. You know, now looking back on it and, and being able to be in the position that I'm in now of getting into it now, I need pandemic relief written into my lease, right? And, and getting creative with contracts is going to have to become the name of the game. And I've talked to several lawyers and real estate agents that have said the same thing, but they're like, yeah, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years and we've used the same lease format for 30 years. And I had to change it for the first time due to the fact that everybody wants some sort of language in the lease for pandemic relief, which is important. 
it's just insane. And it's kind of strange that that didn't stick around and nobody thought to keep it in from the, I mean, I know it was a hundred years ago, but you would think right. that those remnants would have been there in the insurance companies and maybe they were. And that's why the insurance companies didn't have it explicitly stated that, Hey, if things do lock down and you can't do business, your insurance somehow doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. I don't really- understand that, you know, and, and, and I've read those articles where, you know, people that had like forced closure insurance um, and for the insurance company to come back and say, you know, a pandemic actually isn't a forced closure. And it's like, wait, what? That's and the definition like, of it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, I'm pretty sure we're defining it right now. Uh, there was something with um, uh, everybody in, uh, you know, the, the lower ninth ward um, in New Orleans um, in the Maroney and all these places that, you know, got like 10 feet of water, right? Like mm-hmm. the houses that were completely destroyed. Um, the insurance companies wouldn't pay them anything because they had hurricane insurance, not flooding insurance. That is, it's just evil is what it, it is. It is. It's 100% evil. Like that you expect to collect all these payments for nothing to happen. And that's your business model, right? Yep. But the idea is if something happens, so many people have paid you money that you will be fine actually providing your service. Yeah, well, so, uh, you know, dealing with the, the real estate thing has been has been super interesting. You know, uh, I like a personality trait of mine is that I just I fall in love very easily. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I will go and look at a, a, a property and just like be able to envision everything that I've thought about for the last, you know, 10 years, uh, in a space and just be like, this is it. Uh, and then it's like, you know, you get the bad news and it's like the key money's too high and the rent's too high and the build out's too high, you know, all this stuff. And you kind of have to like figure out how to, how to walk it back and and make it work. Um, so what I found was like kind of, uh, identifying those factors, um, you know, how much do I want to pay in key money? How much do I want to pay in rent? You know, how much am I willing to do for a build out and kind of coming up with a number really helps when you go and look at a place. I forget what book it is. I, I have it lying around here somewhere, but there, there are several books that literally walk you through. This is how you form out your business plan so that you will be successful and you can walk into a space and know this will fit my concept. Right. So I'll, yeah, I'll plug in the link for it. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, a lot of it is like, I never wanted to do anything too big. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, uh, I don't want a kitchen. Um, yeah. So that like immediately knocks out like 90% of the available businesses. Um, I, I so that makes imagine, it really yeah. tough. Yeah. That makes it super tough. Yeah. Um, but, the, you know, uh, I, I think that, like, uh, uh, it, it's just a, a, a patience thing, right? You know, you, you I've talked to people that, like, yeah, we looked for four years before we settled on a spot, and I couldn't be happier that I finally had my dream restaurant. Um, and then, like, uh, you know, I worked with a guy uh, who had, like, a, I mean, it was a massive build-out, maybe, maybe $5 million build-out. And... Yeah. And uh, I asked him, I was like, how did you find this place? Like, how did you land on this? And, you know, uh, how did this meet your concept? 
Uh, and he said, yep, this is the only place I looked at. I literally figured out like, yeah, I can see this, you know, let's make it. And I just like, I can't, I can't imagine doing that. That's so insane. That is not look at more than one place. (laughs) I mean, I'm just thinking about like, when I look for like a car, right. And I, when I look for a used car, I'm not looking to spend more than like $5,000. I'll look at like 20 cars before I even consider five thousand dollars but five million dollars i probably would be looking at restaurants until i was 65 years old yeah because how could you ever be satisfied i would never be satisfied i just wouldn't be able to do it unless like i got mary antoinette's chandelier dangling (laughs) over the top of my bar i probably will say no yeah still not good enough that's just me well, I th- is there anything else that you'd like to cover about developing a concept before we wind down? Yeah, I mean, the the one piece of advice that everybody gave me going into this was to not do it. I guess like uh, it does take like an intense amount of bravery and guts to just be like, I have the confidence that I will be able to make this work. Um, the other thing that it takes is time. Um, like, the, you know, you think that it's like, oh, I'll just spend like an hour every day doing this. Uh, that is just not the case. Like it, it takes a tremendous amount of manpower. So uh, as long as you know what you're getting into uh, and you still feel confident, uh, then get it done. Well, thank you very much for your time, Roger, and lending your insight. I'm going to leave out, um, leave in with every episode uh, one question that I'm going to ask everyone, and that is, Given this pandemic and all the things that we've learned over the past year, what do you think about the restaurant industry should change? And what do you think should remain the same as it was before? You know, the thing I think that should change more than anything is, um, you know, how uh, the, the, the restaurant employee is treated. Um, you know, I think that there is a, a, a really toxic concept right now um, in the industry that says that like, you know, if you aren't putting in extra hours, you know, if you aren't putting in extra work, extra effort, then you're not meeting the requirements for the job. And for me, like, I think that means that the the requirements for the job need to be changed. And, you know, the idea of like having a job description and, and sticking to it is really foreign in our industry. But this idea that like, you know, every general manager needs to work 70 hours a week. The bar back, for whatever reason, comes in before everyone and leaves after them. And all this like extra effort, next man up, like kind of paramilitary stuff mm. uh, is, is just wrong. And it's, it's causing irreparable damage um, to the psyches of my friends and my community. Um, and, you know, it's something that when I think about opening Caledonia, it's like, the, the first thing I think about is like, okay, like how can I do better than everywhere I've been before? And I think that that's uh, that's crucial. What do I think would remain the same? That's kind of tough. You know, I, I don't know about like just remaining the same, but I was thinking the other day about uh, when I used to live in Ohio uh, and there was a bar that my friends always wanted to go to and they charged a cover, uh, but there wasn't a band playing. And I was like, this is stupid. And then I got to Chicago and nobody does that anymore. Um, and I was on the website of like a, another uh, uh, venue here in Chicago. And they just like, they're like, yeah, we've never charged a cover. And 
you know, X amount of years. And I was just like, hell yeah, that is great. Don't charge powers, they're stupid. We hope that you enjoyed Roger's insights into opening a bar in a pandemic. Our next guests are shaking up the restaurant industry by establishing methods to create more equitable restaurants. I had the great pleasure of sitting down with Mikey and Jeannie of Ray's High Road Restaurants. They are in Washington trying to help pass legislation to help independent restaurants truly thrive. If you are a restaurant owner or anyone with a vested interest in seeing restaurants succeed, Monday, February 8th, tune in to Wayward Muse. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by liking, subscribing, and sharing your thoughts. Cheers.